0: if you'll open your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, This evening we come back to look at the 19th verse in this chapter, and uh, this has just really been a wonderful opportunity for us to discuss one of my favorite doctrines, which is the doctrine of assurance. And I've really enjoyed this discussion, and you could probably tell that because I'm taking four messages just to deal with this one verse, and we've just been able to expand things and just looking at some uh, great uh, areas concerning assurance. Uh, Since I'm no longer in school and haven't been for a long, long time, I don't have the opportunity to sit down with people and uh, argue this doctrine. I spend most of my time around Christian people, of course, and people that are of the same persuasion that I am, so you don't have much of an opportunity to argue about these things. But I remember when I was in school, especially when I was in high school, that uh, my high school was located close to uh, Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, which is a big uh, actually, a very prestigious seminary among the Wesleyan Methodists. And I had a lot of people in my classes that had parents that went there, uh, went to school there, or taught there. And of course, the Wesleyan Methodists do, uh, believe that you can lose your salvation. And so we would sit and just hash this thing over and go over, time and time again, arguing on the doctrine of eternal security. And uh, then I, when I was younger, um, you know, right after my wife and I had been married just a few years, I had the opportunity to do some traveling with my dad as he was debating uh, different people on different, certain kinds of subjects. And, and this one, eternal security, was one topic that he debated. And we've, we're now living in a time when you don't hear too much about debates between denominations, Uh, People don't do that much anymore because Christianity has become very generic. And so they say, well, doctrine's too divisive for us to talk about, so let's don't get into that. And so you don't see debates going on between denominations. And I think one of the reasons is, is because there just aren't enough people anymore that care enough about doctrine and actually know enough of the Bible to even sit down and discuss these things with you. And unfortunately, that's true. Uh, among a lot of preachers. But I grew up in a time when uh, doctrine did matter, and when you were, if you were a Baptist, that separated you from other people, and this doctrine of eternal security was one of those separating doctrines. Now, we do have lots of people today that preach separation, and separation is a good thing, but they are preaching mostly separation based on dress or based on music based on the length of your hair and things like that. And those things do merit some consideration, but there are much greater issues at stake than those things. And that's because people can find false assurance of their salvation because they try to keep a code or because um, they have some standard they live to. And simply the ability to live by that standard gives them the confidence that they're saved. And that's really not much different than the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said in Matthew 15, "...this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men." And Jesus was speaking there of elevating man-made ideas and man-made doctrines to those that are in place of Scripture. And what that does is it often gives people a false sense of security because their heart is not really close to God. And that's one of the greatest dangers that you have that goes along with assurance of salvation is people that are convinced that they are saved when they really aren't. I'm going to follow that up a little bit more later. But going back to the first message that I preached on this a few weeks ago, I mentioned that one of John's purposes is to refute those that were convinced that they were saved without reason to be, and then to reinforce those that were saved but lacked assurance of it. So our text is uh, 1 John three nineteen, where John says, "...and hereby we know that we are of the truth," And shall assure our hearts before him. Now let me briefly give you the two main points of the previous messages. And then we're going to follow up here this evening with a a third area of discussion. And then we'll be through with this verse and then move on. But the first thing that we talked about here was the problematic factors of assurance. And there are legitimate problematic factors that can cause Christians to lose their assurance. We're foolish if we don't consider these, and and if we don't consider them, it shows that we really don't know all that we need to know about God. Our knowledge is lacking. So there are some things that are problems to us. One of those is the presence of God. That's a factor. Uh, God is the powerful creator. He knows every move that we make. We never escape the watchful eye of God. And if you're unconcerned about God's presence, the fact that he sees everything that you do, then you've really never understood what a helpless creature that you are. And if you don't understand that, then you're not going to be frightened of your sin. Uh, You're not going to worry about that. But somebody who knows that God is there everywhere that they go, they're going to have a problem with assurance because they know sin brings the wrath of God. And that's another area, the punishment, the the God's wrath. That's another reason why we may fail in our assurance. And um, we wonder, if we sin, are we going to face God's punishment? And we're saved, but we are still sinners. Sin nature hasn't been taken away from us. And so we wonder, if we enter into sin, can we be sure that God is not going to punish us for that sin eternally? And there's an answer to that question. Then we spoke about the perfection of God. That's a problematic factor. God demands perfection. He says, you must be perfect as I am perfect. And we know we're not perfect. And so how can we have assurance when we fail God so many times? And there's an answer to that. And that is we stand perfectly in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness stands good for us. So the problematic factors have to be dealt with. And they are dealt with. That's point number two, the persuasive facts of assurance. We find great doctrines in the Bible that we can lean on. And if salvation could be lost, then there is no possibility that we really could have absolute assurance. But we thank the God, God for this, that the Bible teaches that salvation is permanent. And I gave you four reasons how we know that salvation is permanent. Salvation is permanent because of God's purpose. It's God's purpose that we will glorify him. And we glorify him by being holy as God is holy. It's God's purpose to conform his people to the image of Christ. And God never fails in that purpose. Salvation is permanent because of God's promise. God said that he would give us everlasting life. His promise of life is a present possession. The Bible says that when we have believed in Christ, we have passed from death into life. And in God's vernacular, when he speaks of life, he's always speaking of eternal life. God never gives anybody temporary life that's based upon some performance that they might do. Salvation is permanent because of God's provision. Jesus said, those that believe will never hunger and they will never thirst. And so God has provided Jesus as the bread of life And he's also a well of water that springs up in us to everlasting life. Salvation is also permanent because of God's predestination. And that is the greatest factor that underscores the permanency of our salvation. And that is because God planned it before the foundation of the world. God is an immutable God. And so whatever has been in the mind of God from eternity has always been there. It always will be there. And he's predestined us for his own purpose. And his purpose is not dependent upon anything that he foresees in us. Then we talked about another persuasive factor of assurance, and that's the Holy Spirit's performance. Paul said that he who began a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit in our regeneration, in salvation. And once we have been converted and we are changed from lost sinners into uh, God's people, we have been regenerated, then we're going to stay that way until we go home to be with Christ because the Holy Spirit lives in us to keep that work going. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that is the guarantee of God's purchased possession. Then another persuasive factor was the Savior's pleading. Scripture says that Christ is our great high priest who lives forever to make intercession for us. John says in the second chapter, we have an advocate with the Father. And that means that Jesus is in God's courtroom, and there he pleads for us, and he has never lost a case. If God is for us, the Scripture says, who can be against us? And then there's one more persuasive factor we talked about, and that's perseverance. God's people will persevere. So we not only talk about God's predestination and the Son's intercession and the Spirit's sealing, we also have the human side of this which is guaranteed perseverance. The Holy Spirit enables us to do righteous works and those are the evidence of our salvation. So that's just a brief summary of three previous messages and all of that is worth revisiting time and time again. But we need to finish this up. We need to move on in our study and get beyond the 19th verse. So I want to talk to you tonight about the third area, and we'll finish with this, and that is the personal feelings of assurance. The personal feelings of assurance. And personal feelings are important. Uh, Personal feelings have to be planted in the right soil, though. And unfortunately, the roots of assurance for many people is in the wrong soil, or if you want to put it another way, their assurance is anchored wrongly. R.C. Sproul said that there's one group of professing believers that is convinced that they are saved when they really aren't. And so their convictions must be rooted in the wrong place if they are convinced they're saved but they really aren't. And so their conviction has given them false assurance. And that's the most dangerous kind that you can have because that is a recipe for spiritual disaster. So what do things, what do people look at? What, what are some of the things that give people false assurance? Well, emotions are. False assurance is found in emotions. And sometimes that's hard for me to describe because what you know in your head will translate into your feelings. There is an emotional response, and that emotional response is a rational one. That's the, one that's, that's the thing that separates us from animals. Now, I know there are a lot of people who think, well, my dog loves me. And my cat loves me. Your cat doesn't love you. You are a food source, and that's all that you are. And when you come home, your dog wags his tail. He knows he's going to get petted and get some food. That's why your dog loves you. And, and people are confused about this because according to the Bible, true love is really a conscious choice that's made through spiritual eyes of knowing God. And when you talk about love on any other kind of level, it's not the love of the Bible. Because looking at love through spiritual eyes, it means that it is a conscious, completely self-sacrificing choice. In verse 16, John says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And so you can see helping out another brother, doing something for someone, is a conscious choice that you make. And that's what the Bible talks about, uh, 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 speaks of when it's speaking of love. And so this kind of love, uh, according to God, is incapable for animals to have because an animal doesn't know God. And so you take that and you compare it to humans. Humans that don't know God do not know how to love like God expects people to love. And that's why that you find people that take their vows in marriage and they promise that they're going to love, honor, and all of that, cherish their mate. But then when somebody a little bit better, they think, comes along, then they start to go after that person and they end up in an affair. That's not love. That's a lustful affair, not love. And people say, but but don't I deserve this happiness? Don't I deserve this love? Don't I deserve to feel this way? And the problem with that is the word I. Because according to the Bible, I does not enter into this. It's the other person. It's not the desire to please self. Love always considers others first. And of course, the example of that is the selfless love of Christ. But religion is that way, too. Uh, People have a desire to please self when it comes to religion. And so they look for a church that gives them self-gratification. And many people are looking for churches in this way. How will it satisfy me emotionally? And I'll get to that a little bit more in just a moment. But most people do not look for a church based upon the doctrine of the church. And doctrine is really the only validation that we have of assurance. That's where we receive our real assurance, is in our doctrine. And if you divorce yourself from the doctrine, then your assurance is built on nothing but straw. You have a house of straw. And when a storm comes, that gets blown away. And so this emotional side, I feel it, therefore I am, is actually a house of cards. Emotions lead people to the wrong churches. They want to be stirred up emotionally. And so they choose a church based upon the music style, based upon social activities, or even based upon the preacher's style. What he says is not as important as the way that he says it. And that's kind of an interesting thing to me because we had a former member of, of this church that once told me that he liked the people and he didn't have any problems with the church. His only real problem with the church was me. I was his problem. And the problem was, he said, you're just not emotional enough when you preach. And so he chose a church that had a more emotional appeal. And today that man's out of church, his family broke up, and it's all lost. It's, it's a bad mistake to choose churches based on emotion. The most important thing is what comes out of the pulpit. Now, I think the difference in our church, and there are many differences in ours and other churches, is... But here's one thing that we do. We keep preaching the laws of God. We keep making a demand for holiness. And I don't mean holiness in the sense that we check off a rule sheet to see if everybody's in compliance. We preach that salvation is more than raising your hand and walking down the aisle. And here is a problem with much preaching because when a preacher stops there, what he does is he short changes the gospel In other words, he makes no demand for repentance. He makes no demands concerning the lordship of Christ. And when you preach to people like that, the people won't lack assurance. And the reason they don't lack it is because they're convinced that they're saved when they really aren't. And the preacher's there to tell them, you are saved and you are eternally secure. You're, You're once saved, always saved. And don't ever doubt it. No matter what happens later, don't ever doubt that you are actually saved. So they get the profession, and they move on. Hand them the rule sheet, and if you keep the rules, then you must be pretty good. Your salvation is okay. So I feel saved, and I was told never to doubt that. And though so there's never an examination of the heart. There's never any real look into that to see if the profession was really genuine. One author said it this way. He said, Preachers today want to make it easy as possible by their approach to accept what they think is the gospel and then immediately make people feel secure. It is a very dangerous thing to understand the doctrine of eternal security, to understand the eternality of salvation, but not to understand the truth about repentance and saving faith. Because now what you're doing is psychologically assuring people that their salvation is forever when they don't even have it. Because when they came, they never came through the path of true repentance and true confession of Jesus as Lord to the degree of self-denial and self-sacrifice and self-submission. But where there is convicting preaching, doubt can be created. And that's true when you preach the doctrines of God's Word, and you preach holiness to people, when you preach repentance to people, then doubt starts to be created. And that's purposeful, so that we examine ourselves. But I feel it, so therefore I am. you see the mistake in that? When you're fed false information, you can really feel good about yourself, but that doesn't mean that you're saved. Then also, that leads me to this, that false assurance is found in experiences. And I do believe that there are experiences that people have that awaken them to the gospel many times. Some people are awakened that way. And there may be or there is that singular moment when you know that you're saved. Now, I've made the mistake in the past of telling people that if you can't pinpoint that tingly moment when it happened to you, the exact moment that you believe that you were saved, then you probably aren't saved. But then as I got older and I learned about my own experience, I saw how dangerous that can be. Because if you depend on knowledge of the experience or the fact that you had an experience, then where I am now can be so far removed from the time that I was actually saved that I may not remember anymore to be able to pinpoint that exact time. The important part is not where I was then. The important part is where am I now? And do I have, the, exp- do I have the, the evidences of salvation in my life? Because if I have the evidence, then I know that there was a point in time when I had the feeling of knowing that I was saved. That makes sense to you? So you don't want to rely upon the experience if you don't have the evidence in your life now because that means the experience was, quite frankly, bogus. The experience means nothing. So experience is subject to many factors. Nobody in Scripture has ever asked, what did you experience? But they are asked, what do you believe? Experiences differ from person to person. For example, my wife had an uncle that died a few years ago. And I do believe that he was a Christian. Before he was saved, he drank all the time and... and um, He made a fool of himself, falling all over the place and being drunk all the time. Whenever he would come to visit, he was always a wise, cracking critic of of Christianity and and of uh, living a Christian life. But then he had a major heart attack. And his story was that he saw Jesus, and he felt a hand that touched him, and God spoke to him, and he was convinced to be a Christian. And people ask me about that all the time. Do you believe things like that? I mean, do you believe that, that God appears to people? And do you believe that Jesus appears in hospital rooms and God actually talks to people in that way? And I have to tell you, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe that happens. I think it may be possible that people think that they see things and they may be moved by that and what they think they saw might actually push them to salvation. But I don't think that God appears that way and works in that way. And I'll tell you why. It's because the Scripture says that we are born again by the Word of God. It is the written Word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate the heart and bring people to repentance and faith. Subjective experiences ultimately create confusion. Now, it might not in one individual case, but if you teach people to rely on subjective experiences, then you'll end up with a lot of people that have had their visions, and they've had their dreams, and they have their experiences, and none of them can be properly evaluated. Never on an objective level. You can't measure somebody's experience. But that's exactly what we do need. We have to have something to measure it by. And we do have something to measure faith by. We have the Word of God. We have the canon of God's Word. Now, interestingly, that's what the word canon means. It means the measuring rod. It means the standard. And when a, when a book of the Bible is considered to be canonical, it means it's been put there as the standard, that it, that it matches the other books, that it's a standard to go by. Well, the objective standard can be trumped by people's experiences. And that's what happens with the charismatic movement. That's why it's perpetuated. It's what, happens, what happened with the Mormons. That's why Mormonism is perpetuated. Because the standard of God's word is abandoned. And the experience of seeing an angel or, or getting a message from God or, or speaking in a strange tongue, seeing a bright light, whatever it might be, that becomes the revelation instead of the objective word of God. And so people are fooled into following that rather than the canon, rather than the objective word. So going back to my wife's uncle, I listened to his experience, but I never did believe it. But I could talk to him. I sat down when I talked with him, and I heard him tell me what he believed, and I watched and saw what it did in his life. And based upon that, I believed that he was a saved man. I didn't count the fact or what he thought was a fact that he spoke to God and saw Jesus No, I relied upon what do you believe about the Word of God? What do you believe about Christ? And what does your life show? Now, that leads me finally to true assurance is found in education. And I'm not speaking of education like Harvard and Yale. Not do you have a degree, not have you been to Bible college, nothing like that. It's education, knowledge of the doctrines of the Bible. And I don't mean can you recite all the books of the Bible in the proper order and do you know the names of the twelve apostles? Not that kind of knowledge. This is the objective reality of knowing what is revealed in Scripture and how that applies to you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if... You keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. So Paul is telling us there that salvation is by belief in the facts of the gospel. And when you have received those by faith, and you know that they're true, that's when you're saved. The facts never change. The facts never ride the waves of emotion. The facts are never up, and the facts are never down. The facts are always the same. They will not change. They're consistent. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, How does a Christian deal with doubt? Although there are many causes for it, there's only one answer by knowledge. The Christian must simply take himself in hand and confront himself with what he knows to be true concerning God and God's work in his life. In other words, faith, which is the opposite of doubt, being based on knowledge, must be fed by it. And that's a great statement. John says it this way, and hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So the operative word there is know. How do we know? And voice said, faith, which is the opposite of doubt, being based on knowledge, must be fed by it. So what do you look for in a church? Are you going to find assurance of your faith in the music? Are you going to find it in the social activities? Are you going to find it in the mannerisms of the pastor? Are you going to find it in what people wear, or are you going to find it in how people look? All of those things have their proper sphere, but those are not the primary things. When you look for a church, the question should always be, how will it feed my soul with the knowledge of God's Word? That's why I don't like to listen to storytelling preachers. There's not enough time to talk about God's Word when guys are telling stories all the time. It's why I don't like jokesters in the pulpit that have a big long joke to tell everybody before, uh, before during, and after the sermon. I, I don't like those kinds of things. I don't like performers in a pulpit. I don't like pulpit pounders. I don't like preachers. I don't like preachers that do backflips off the stage. It's why we don't have clowns. It's why we don't have weightlifters or anything like that to attract people to church. We don't do it. It's why we preach the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and it's why we examine God's Word. And it's because that's the way you find assurance. I don't use the dartboard method for trying to pick a scripture to preach to you on Sunday morning. We just go through the Word of God. So your assurance is built on the knowledge of God's Word and the Word alone. It doesn't come by emotions. It doesn't come by experiences. It doesn't come by singers. It doesn't come by kids programs and the church ball team. It doesn't even come by a church Christian school. Assurance is built on the objective standard of God's Word. What is it that we believe to be true? Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed. That is assurance. Why does he have assurance? Why are you persuaded, Paul? Why do you have assurance? He answers that, I know whom I have believed. I know, I know, I know. Listen to what John Gill says. He's one of the greatest expositors and deepest theologians the Baptist ever produced. He said, knowledge and faith go together. They that truly know Christ believe in him. And the more they know him, the more strongly do they believe in him. Now, do you hear what he says? Knowledge and faith go together. They that truly know Christ believe in him, and the more they know him, the more strongly do they believe in him. And that's why I'm thankful for all of you that come out on Wednesday nights, that you see the importance of coming to church on a Wednesday night to hear God's word. I'm thankful for that because you are the ones that I'm most assured and are the most assured Members of the church, I'm most assured of your salvation and you're most assured of your own. Why? Because you listen to God's word, you take that in, you take the opportunities to learn from this. The more strongly that you believe, the more strongly that you know Christ, the more assurance you'll have of your salvation. Now, I love it when people come to me and say, well, we have a copy of the sermon and we're going to listen to that again. And you tell me, well, we discussed that at dinner. We discussed that at breakfast." And you're reading the Bible at home and you're studying the Scriptures. I don't worry about those kind of people. Folks, I know the sermons that I preach are not great. I don't claim that they are. I wish a thousand times that I could do a better job preaching to you. I wish that, that preaching could come effortlessly and that I could able was able to speak eloquently like Spurgeon could do it, but I can't do that. So the only thing that I can do is just rely on giving you the word and hope that you drink that in and draw from that and that you increase in your knowledge of God and by that you become stronger Christians and you are assured. I pray the Holy Spirit will build your faith. So I I pray that knowledge will make you stronger. That's the key. It's to know Christ and to know what he's done for you. See, the problematic factors aren't problems anymore because God takes care of all of that. And his justice, his, his holiness, his wrath, his punishment, all of that is satisfied in Christ. Now, three or four weeks ago, when we were starting on this, I, I said that the understanding of justification by faith alone is absolutely essential to assurance. And that's why when Martin Luther brought this doctrine out during the, Re- during the Reformation, there was a darkened world that was brought out of the Dark Ages. When that bulb went on, when that light bulb went on of justification by faith alone, it changed Western civilization. And without that the world would still be under the darkness of Roman Catholicism. We'd be locked down with that. You see, the Church of Rome was actually exposed by the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so the Catholic Church became reformed without even actually being reformed. We say, well, how, that's, how is that possible? Well, what they had to do was that, that they never did come to the truth, but they had to turn loose of people and stop persecuting people and, and we're in church tonight and not burned at the stake for preaching these kinds of things because justification by faith alone awakened enough people to the church that the, to the truth that the Roman Catholic Church could no longer contain it. They couldn't stop that movement. It's a liberating truth that changes the world. And so your assurance of salvation is, salvation is nothing other than the justifying work of God in your heart. Knowing that, being convinced of that, that's where your assurance comes from. So if you want to end your doubts, learn more about Jesus. You know, some people are convinced they're saved and they have no reason to be saved. Or uh, convinced, rather, they have no reason to think that they're, that they're saved. So they put their faith in their emotions and their experiences, but they don't really know Christ. And so they spend all of their time, they're just, just rabid, rolling along there, whiling away their time in false assurance. Well, what I long for is the good old days of debate. I long for the time when we could return to a period when people walked in the churches and the first place that they headed was into the office and they talked to the pastor and they said, what do you believe about Jesus? What are the doctrines that this church teaches? What will I learn if I become a member of this church? Some people ask. A few ask. Most of them don't. The ones that do ask, you never ever have to worry about those kind of people. I mean, they're easily teachable. They want to learn. And so I just pray that the others will stay around long enough to listen and to learn. And finally, the knowledge of Christ will cause them to more strongly to believe in him. Now, in the first message, I gave you three categories of professor's Three categories, four categories rather, of of people who said something about salvation. People who are unsaved and know they are unsaved. People who are saved but do not know that they're saved. People who are saved and know they are saved. And people that are not saved but are confident they are saved. And you don't want to be caught in categories one, two, and four. You want to be in category three. People that are saved and know that they are saved. And they know it because they know the Word. That is the way to assure your heart. Know God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're able to spend in your Word tonight. And Lord, we just look at this this great doctrine of assurance. And I just pray, Lord, you'd help us to study your Word in, in greater ways that we would try to find out all that we can about you we would be students of the word because we know when that happens it changes everything about our lives it makes us closer to you it it makes us more responsive to your will and certainly it gives us the assurance that we need to know that we're saved pray lord you bless your people thank you for bringing them here tonight and and lord just uh, we praise your name for those who are concerned about your word Bless us as we leave here tonight. Keep us all safe, Lord. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.